With the highest number of young STEM graduates per capita in the EU, Ireland has the people and skills your company needs to succeed here. IDA Ireland, the National Investment Development Agency, can help you find and nurture the people you need to internationalise and thrive. Our talent is just one of the extraordinary benefits Ireland has to offer. Learn more at idaireland.com. Invest in extraordinary. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. The results of France's inquiry into sexual abuse in the Catholic Church are chilling. More than 200,000 children were abused over 70 years, crimes aided by a culture of concealment. We ask about the future of the Church in France. And in the English-speaking world, newsreaders and podcast hosts tend to use a particular dialect, what's called Standard English. Students everywhere are taught it's the only proper one. But that is a matter of class and power, not one of grammar. First up, though. At midnight local time today, Sydney began to open up after four months of lockdown. Guys, our lockdown ends in six minutes and I just got to Kmart because they're opening at midnight and you should see how many people are here. It's crazy. Pubs and supermarkets throughout the Australian city kept some unusual hours to catch the midnight trade. For many in Europe and America, lockdowns already seem like a thing of the past. But in the Asia-Pacific region, they've remained central in the fight against COVID. Australia, China, Taiwan, New Zealand, all have maintained a zero-COVID approach to keep case numbers to a minimum. In the pandemic's first year, Taiwan officially counted just a dozen deaths from COVID-19. New Zealand, just 27. By that measure, these policies have been a success, but they were never going to be sustainable. In much of the world, they had no choice. COVID was circulating. They had to cope with it. Edward Carr is The Economist's deputy editor and oversees our COVID coverage. In important countries in Asia, they attempted to keep COVID cases at an absolute zero. So whenever a case came up, they stomped on it. They sometimes shut things down. They did contact tracing. They shut their borders. No COVID cases was the rule. And it worked. Okay, let's go back in time here. Why did so many places in the Asia-Pacific region adopt this approach in the first place? Well, I think it's partly because some of them are islands. So Taiwan, New Zealand, Australia are a very big island, but they could therefore close their borders. I think the other reason is that they had experience of SARS COV-1, if you like, the first of these coronaviruses that have recently broken out. And they knew kind of what this pandemic might entail. So they were very, very quick onto it. And they had some of the plans in place in order to do so. Singapore is a good example of that. Also Hong Kong and Taiwan. And if it's been such a success, then why get rid of it? I think the reason to reverse it now is that Delta is so infectious and spread so easily 
that the mechanisms they use to try and tamp down the disease don't really work. So, you know, Australia, for instance, is reporting something like 14,000 cases a week. At that point, it's too late. You can't return to zero. Zero's gone. The other reason, I think, to abandon it is that there's now a vaccine. And it's pretty clear that this disease is going to become endemic. In other words, it's going to be something that continues to circulate. You're not going to eliminate COVID in the way that you've eliminated smallpox. It's going to be around the world. At some point, you have to face reality that this disease is going to circulate. And so countries that did try and keep the disease out altogether have to accept that sometime or another, they're going to have to live with it. You mentioned vaccines there, but weren't some of these countries slow to vaccinate their populations? I mean, how do vaccination rates play into these decisions? Well, I think they play in in two ways. The first is that vaccination is is the only way for these countries to achieve immunity. If you compare it with Europe, where you've had both vaccination and the disease circulating, you have those two sources of protection against the disease. But in these countries in Asia, there has been no circulating virus. There's no immunity acquired through infection. So the only source of protection is vaccination. Well, that's very worrying because if you have a vaccination rate of, I don't know, something over 80%, which is what you have in Europe, you supplement that with all the cases of infection, which means you've got a whole population immunity that may be much higher and offers protection. There's one other effect, I think, which is that one of the incentives to be vaccinated is the threat of infection. Well, if you have virtually no cases in the country, the incentive to be vaccinated is that much lower. And certainly in some countries like Australia, people have said, well, you know, I'm a bit worried about this. It may be a bit risky. Why don't I wait and see if I really need a vaccine? That means it's a sort of chicken and egg problem about getting vaccination rates high enough in order to open your borders. But having no cases... So you can't get vaccination rates high enough. And I think you're beginning to see that that chain broken in a country like Australia, which is reporting substantial cases now. So thinking about countries in the region, how are they moving on from this zero COVID policies? What, what sort of ways are they changing? Well, you're seeing one country after another acknowledge that the game is up. And the, and the latest is New Zealand, uh, which on Saturday is a sort of mass vaccination day at a kind of like a national celebration where everyone's supposed to go and be vaccinated. And uh, with only, what, just over 50, almost 55% of the population over 12 having had two vaccines in New Zealand, that's that's a, still a lot of people they've got to get done. Some countries like Vietnam, they're only something like 16% of the population over 12 had both vaccines. So there's a long way to go. And in those countries, which have very, very low rates and may struggle to get hold of vaccine, you worry that in the end, this strategy is going to run out of road before people are vaccinated. And you're going to see a lot of natural cases with all of the deaths and sickness that, that that entails. And is any country sticking with the zero COVID idea? So the standout case is China, which is incredibly low number of cases, something just over 300 a a week, which is hardly any given the size of the population, but has only still under half over 12s have been vaccinated with both doses. They are clinging to this, partly because now so much political capital is wrapped up in the idea that China just doesn't tolerate cases. But this comes at a cost of closing your borders, of clamping down on on inevitable cases when they arise, not relying on contact tracing. What they do is they shut down entire regions when there is an outbreak. And how long will it be until you get vaccination rates up high enough 
in order to begin to open up. I think it'll be a long time. There's one sort of thing on the horizon which could act as the, if you like, the end of this zero COVID strategy in China, which is the Olympic Games, which are coming up in, in Beijing, the Winter Olympics. So that might be the time when they begin to relax. But it's an expensive strategy until then. And what about the big picture here? How can countries in the region get back to normal starting from here? Well, Jason, I think it's a question of this combination of pushing up vaccination and gradually opening. And it's a difficult dance to do because with this very infectious Delta variant, the chances of it just escaping and really taking off are always there. It's an irony, isn't it? I mean, this zero COVID strategy has been unbelievably successful. It saved many, many lives. And and it's also been clear that in economies like Taiwan, which had a successful zero COVID strategy, it also went along with a successful economy because you didn't have to spend much time closed down. But this thing which worked so well doesn't work now and that getting out of it is going to be awkward. Edward, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Jason. Can supply chains be more sustainable without losing performance, efficiency, and resilience? It's possible with GEP. With strategy-managed services and AI-powered software, GEP helps hundreds of market-leading companies build sustainable supply chains that are cleaner, greener, and highly effective. Supply chains that are good for the planet and good for your business. GEP. Software. Strategy. Managed services. GEP.com. In France last week, the results of a two-year investigation revealed the astonishing extent of sexual abuse within the Catholic Church. Jean-Marc Sauvé, the senior civil servant in charge of the report, said that more than 200,000 children were abused by the Church over the past 70 years. Dans la population française âgée de plus de 18 ans, à 216 000, plus ou moins 50 000, the majority of the victims were boys between the ages of 10 and 13. Mr. Sauvé said the abuse had been perpetuated by silence and an institutional cover-up involving thousands of clergy members. Mais il y a eu surtout un ensemble de négligence, de défaillance, le silence, une couverture institutionnelle qui ont présenté un caractère de systémique. These findings have further damaged an increasingly fragile relationship between the church and the French people. The report, which runs to thousands of pages, is really chilling reading. Sophie Petter is our Paris bureau chief. It's incredibly blunt and involves testimony from those who were abused, which is moving, it's upsetting. And what do you think really stands out from this investigation? I think what really emerges from this report is how it was widespread everywhere. There was not one particular region or town. It was taking place both in the church, but also local parishes, also in scout groups, in catechism classes, sometimes within families. 
And what the report reveals is quite the sort of twisted psychological relationship that it often involved. This was something where the victims were made to feel or ended up feeling a sense of guilt and shame about what was going on, which in some ways sort of entrenched this power relationship between the clergy who were abusing them and these young children uh, who were the victims. There was silence, there was deceit, there was cover-up, there was shame... And this web of misplaced trust and manipulation kept a sort of lid of silence over what was happening for so many years. And that silence is the reason it's taken until now for this abuse to come to light? I think what's happened over the last five years or so is that some of these victims, and possibly they have been empowered by what's happened in other countries, have come forward. And that's what began to shift the debate in France and led to the inquiry. In particular, there was one a victim who had been abused as part of a scout group when he was 10 years old, uh, François Deveau, who started a, a victim support group in 2015, and he accused a Lyon priest called Bernard Prenat of abuse. And Prenat was, was convicted last year. The cover-up of the Prenat affair led in 2019 to the resignation of a cardinal, Cardinal Philippe Barbarin. And when that happened, he was then later convicted of covering up the affair, which was a conviction that was overturned on appeal in the end. But all of this led to a sense that there was something very sinister that was taking place within the Catholic Church. And that's when the Catholic Church decided to undertake this inquiry into its own conduct. And it was Devaux who this week made the chilling line um, he, he, he uttered at a press conference when the report was unveiled. Prendre, messieurs, c'est que vous êtes une honte pour notre humanité. You are a disgrace to our humanity. And given that the report has had the backing, the testimony of victims like Mr. DeVoe, how has it been received more broadly? Well, it's interesting. The Catholic Church has clearly been shaken by this. There's been expressions by the Pope who talked about his great sorrow and, and sympathy for the victims. Desidero esprimere alle vittime la mia tristezza e il mio dolore. President Macron has also spoken now. Je souhaite que ce travail puisse se poursuivre dans... La lucidité et l'apaisement. Notre société en a besoin. Il y a un besoin de vérité, de réparation. Arguing that there is a need for truth, for reparations, and that this has really broken people's lives. That was a phrase that he used. I think one of the things that has has come out from this, and Jean-Marc Sauvé was on the on French radio saying that. It was the scale that has so shaken people uh, that even he, when he's a senior civil servant, he, he undertook the presidency of this commission of inquiry. When he began, he had no idea what they were going to uncover. And even he has found that he needed to seek counselling himself to deal with the testimony that he's had to hear. So I think it's the sort of shock that always follows these sorts of revelations that, that is currently being expressed and on the part of the, the Catholic Church as well. And do you think it's likely there will be more prosecutions of members of the French clergy? At this point, it looks unlikely, partly because of the statute of limitations being passed. So I think what is more probable to emerge from all of this is some form of reparations, some recommendations that were proposed in the report about how the Catholic Church can look again and into recruitment, into training, into transparency, into making sure that this sort of thing doesn't happen again. But I suspect that it'd be very difficult for any prosecutions to be made at this point. 
And as you say, this has all shaken the country badly. What about the, the church itself? How will these revelations change affect the church in France? Well, it's interesting to look at France and its relationship with the Catholic Church, partly because it's quite unusual. It goes back to a law that was passed in 1905 to entrench something that the French call laïcité. This is a kind of secular model which is designed to keep the state neutral in any religious affairs. And this means that, you know, in a sense, uh, France doesn't have those sort of powerful state-backed Catholic institutions that might exist or do exist in, in other countries. And some people had suggested that that was a way in which people might have been protected from this sort of abuse. But uh, it clearly wasn't the case. Already the Catholic Church has suffered from its image as the scandal has emerged over the years. And I think the French are, you know, they wear their religion very, very lightly when it comes to Catholicism. The priesthood is not what it once was. There's only half the number of priests, about 12,000 of them today, that there was 20 years ago, and half of those are over the age of 75. And I think, if anything, that sort of fading of of the Catholic Church from the centre of people's lives, it's a trend that will only be uh, confirmed and continued after this latest scandal. Sophie, thank you very much for your time. Thanks very much. All the people who say they speak English, they speak with accent so different that they might be speaking foreign languages. George Bernard Shaw, a celebrated Irish playwright, allegedly quipped that the United States and Great Britain are two countries separated by a common language. But there are countless American and British dialects too, not to mention other Anglophone countries such as South Africa and Australia. Here is an English sentence in print, which looks the same everywhere, but everybody pronounces it differently. C'est bad. Yes, but think of the time it's taken to standardize the printed word. The standardization of the spoken word has only just begun. Standard English is the dialect of textbooks, the one of lots of literature, the one newsreaders and politicians use. Whether that is the one true proper English, though, is up for debate. Today's standard spoken English just happens to be based on the dialect that prevailed near the seat of power in England, which was London, and the two great universities of Oxford and Cambridge at the critical point in history where printing took off. Lane Green is The Economist's language columnist. But the southeastern dialect that became the standard and is the ancestor of our own standard English today is not more correct or more logical or in any way inherently superior to the other dialects of England or Scotland or anywhere else that were spoken at that time. So what's the comparator here? What's a non-standard English that you might be referring to? Well, for example, many people in parts of London and parts of the United States and elsewhere say things like you was instead of you were. Incidentally, people sometimes say I were in parts of Britain rather than I was. And that is not standard in our standard English, but this has nothing to do with some inherent superiority of you were. If you think about it, every other English verb has just one past tense form, like I spoke, you spoke, he spoke. But English does this I was, you were, he was thing. So this actually makes it a more illogical verb. You could argue that it's inferior and it would be better to say was all the way through or were all the way through. So why is it that that ultimately imperfect dialect stuck, given it was from so long ago? 
Well, any dialect is imperfect, of course. And the reason this one stuck around is just because once you're the prestige speech and writing form as well of the capital and of everybody who's anybody, then other people want to imitate that. It's important to remember, though, that the standard has nothing really to do with accent, but it is the language of elites everywhere. So it means a lawyer in Belfast will talk to a lawyer in Johannesburg or a lawyer in Mumbai with this standard using the same grammar everywhere. But some linguists have been arguing publicly, and recently one of them is Willem Holman of Lancaster University, that we shouldn't consider standard English the only correct form. But it does get you away from a kind of standardized, widely agreed grammar. Right. Well, this point is often misunderstood. When people like Willem Holman say that correctness is a matter of which dialect you're speaking, they don't say get rid of the standard. The standard is valuable. It's incredibly important for tying together all those people around the world. And so doing away with it would be, in a way, counterproductive. Anyone anywhere in the world who does learn that standard has access to the written culture and to the oral culture that uses that standard. And so it's valuable not just to today's elites, but to those who would like to advance their careers and their lives tomorrow. But still, though, that's two kind of separate aims here, how to sort of balance the inclusion of many dialects and the notion that there is this entrenched standard English that, for better or for worse, everyone takes to be the good one. Well, what people like Willem Holman are trying to do is spread the word that dialect diversity is a fact of English, and it always has been. And so if you hear someone speaking a dialect that isn't the standard, you shouldn't immediately assume that they are too stupid to speak the standard and kind of mark them down mentally for their abilities. So linguists are working to get this into classrooms. They're taking young students who don't have standard English as their native variety and helping them to translate their home variety into the standard. And then in some lucky class, They're also teaching things like the standard versus the dialect and what that means for issues of class and prestige and power. But this is not really widely taught. It is in some schools in England, but not in as many places as I think it should be, because this understanding of English as a bundle of dialects is so much richer and so much more interesting and engaging. You do need to learn the standard, and there are rules of the standard, but that's not the same thing as saying that every other way of speaking or writing is fundamentally illogical or wrong. Lane, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you very much, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, leave us a rating and a review. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. See you back here tomorrow. What do resilient, sustainable, and high-performing supply chains have in common? They are all powered by GEP Software. Built on GEP Quantum, the AI-powered, low-code software platform for procurement, supply chain, and sustainability, GEP Software helps market-leading companies worldwide achieve breakthrough performance and results. GEP, helping the world's best companies do better. Visit GEP.com.